Mutability. Welcome to Nature's Lead. This is a podcast available at naturesleadcom that both examines and inspires a certain approach towards life that is based both on personal philosophies and on the writings of people such as Emerson and Thoreau. Please send any feedback to info at naturesleadcom or drop a comment on to either the blog or on to iTunes. This is Series 2, Episode 32. Title, Reality is Only Feelings. Welcome to 2008, and Happy New Year to all of you. In this episode, I talk about the movie The Graduate and how it unearths a true reality below the weight and confusion of society's institutions and traditions. So we'll get to that in a second, but first, today's random window. A new year is taking in a fresh breath. It's clean, it's refreshing, it's filled with looking forward. It's just as if you walked into an unexpected clearing in the forest and widened your chest with a large intake of newly minted oxygen. You look ahead, and everything seems laid out in front of you. Yes, it's all in our heads, but thank goodness it is. That way we can control it. We can believe this is a fresh, new opportunity, and we can pick and choose that which we wish to stuff on our packs for the invigorating hike into the new year. I'm ready to set up a new camp, and I can't wait to roast some marshmallows over an evening fire draped by all the stars the sky can muster. On to the main topic. Reality is only feelings. Well, I can't list for you my top ten movies, but I think I could always list my top two. Number one is Star Wars. A lot of you are cringing. I can sense it. I can sense your disappointment there. Maybe it's because it hit me emotionally as a young boy, but whatever it is, it's firmly at the top and always will be. And incidentally, I'm not even a big sci-fi guy. Never have been. So coming in at number two is The Graduate. And I want to stress that Star Wars is high on my list more for entertainment, a great story, and a nice flow, whereas The Graduate is there more for its intellectual and emotional effects. In other words, I think most people would watch The Graduate and think ho-hum, those who would watch it to be entertained, that is. The Graduate was released in 1969. It came at a point in history that was very volatile here in the States. The atmosphere was fired with emotional upheaval over many issues, and the stability and traditions of the government and many institutions across America were being questioned and challenged. I need to remind you of this because this film is tightly coupled with the period in which it came out, and I also need to be able to have you accept some of its more drastic and graphic statements. Now first, let me say that if you haven't seen the film and wish to not know the details and the ending, then turn me off and go rent it. I'll still be here when you get back. In fact, we'll all wait for you, if that's okay with everyone. Everyone? Okay, nobody said anything, so I'm going to get some laundry done and uh, grab a quick bite to eat. Uh, let's meet back here in two hours. I wonder if I wonder if that new Chinese place delivers. Uh, let me look up the number on the internet. Oh, big screen TV on sale. Bob's big screen blowout. Bob says, come buy big screens from me. Huh. Well, that sounds reputable. Okay, here's the number. 
Uh, oh, yes. Uh, do you deliver? Oh, great. I'd like... Uh, oh, just a second. Did you guys want anything? Tell you what, I'll, I'll just order in bulk. Hello? Uh, do you have a family pack? Oh, great. How many egg rolls come with that? Ten? Okay, uh, give me a hundred family packs. What's that? No, I'm just having a few people over. Oh, I see. Well, how about if we hold the rice? What? Okay, great. Fantastic. Wonderful. Bye. It's a no-go, people. So, hmm. So how's the weather been where you guys are? It's been kind of cold here. Tell you what, let's just get going and I'll fill those others in when they come back. We can't be rearranging our lives for a 40-year-old movie rental. The Graduate. This movie makes a great statement about life and human nature. And you'll see this as we dive into it. The movie melds a brilliant story together with great acting and excellent music. Dustin Hoffman stars as Benjamin, and Simon and Garfunkel's most famous songs are in this movie. Incidentally, the song Scarborough Fair is probably my most favorite song of all time. It's also interesting to know that this is one of the most studied films in film school. You'll remember when I talked about Citizen Kane, how that movie is number one in that arena. However, as a reminder, the most important thing about these movies is understanding some of the detailed symbolism and multiple layers of meaning the films are conveying. I don't care as much about which films film scholars study, but I do care about well-written, intelligently layered films, and oftentimes these are one and the same. The film opens with Benjamin coming home having just graduated college. He is nearly catatonic as he sits on the plane and as he then stands on the moving walkway in the airport. This mood continues right into his graduation party at his home that his parents are having for him. You quickly feel the superficial nature of it all. This is the beginning of multiple attacks that the film unleashes. Two things are being questioned. The sincerity and honesty of parties and the relevance and meaning of graduating college. In a sense, two institutions are being held up to harsh light higher learning degrees, and society's social parties. First, it is clear that Ben doesn't know what he wants to do, nor even what he is or who he is. He is lost, and therefore, no personality or life is coming out of him. He's like a zombie going through the motions. The party emphasizes this because you see the contrast between him and all the bubbly, talkative party guests. And they are not his friends, they are his parents' friends. They and his parents are all reacting to the label of graduate, to the singular event of the graduation. They're reacting to the track star, another, another label he has. They aren't reacting to him, who he really is. It gives you the feeling that the whole point of the diploma was for his parents, for their friends, for society. This is crucial to establishing some of the central ideas of the film. Even one of the guests suggests he goes into plastics at one point. Plastic is a great way to describe the feel toward institutions and traditional society staples that many people harbored at that time, and this feel was what the movie was trying to convey and visualize. One plot element that is crucial to the story is that this party is where Mrs. Robinson begins to seduce him. In fact, this part of the movie, the fair, is what's most remembered and is often quoted as the subject of the movie, yet actually the true story doesn't begin until well into the film. 
Usually, the actual story in a movie begins around 25 or 30 minutes into the film. This is where it is clear what the conflict is that the main character will be resolving. The Graduate takes a departure from this tight Hollywood rule and delays that moment when the story is revealed. The effect is that we elongate the experience of what the film is criticizing. The main story is an epiphany, an electric reaction to the blasé, the doldrums, the frustratingly empty life that is led in this world of parties and other institutions. But back to Mrs. Robinson. At the party, he's very quiet and uncomfortable, and he even escapes to his room in frustration. It is at this moment that Mrs. Robinson enters his room asking to be driven home. She later propositions him, and he, at a later time, decides to take her up on her offer. But it's important to see that he's reacting to the stilted, mapped-out surface of his graduation party. This begins a slow slide of his life as it degrades over time. Ben is an innocent. I didn't say Ben is innocent. I said he is an innocent meaning he represents an innocent, clean soul, and we are seeing how he is affected by many staples of society, whether good or bad. We see his innocence at the graduation party, his innocence in talking to Mrs. Robinson that evening, his innocence in his first night in a hotel with Mrs. Robinson as he stumbles through getting a room. There's one key scene which, I think, helps you feel exactly how Ben feels, how any true innocent would feel when thrust into this thick societal molasses. Ben, as a gift from his parents, receives a full deep diving suit with air tanks and everything. His parents announce his entrance to their friends along the pool at one point, and he's prodded into walking out in this outfit. He's very reluctant and uneasy, but comes out to please his parents. He then drops into the pool and floats down to the bottom, and there's this beautiful scene of him looking out in muffled silence, save the drumbeat of his tank-assisted breathing, looking out across the emptiness of the underwater, antiseptic surface of the pool's floor and walls. Somehow, it allows you to feel what Ben's been feeling up to this point. He's locked in, muffled, looking out at emptiness with no freedom or anything real to pursue. Now let's get to one of the most meaningful scenes in movie history. It's the most difficult and ugly scene in the movie, And at the same time, it's one of the most beautiful. Ben, who is now having an affair with Mrs. Robinson, is forced by his parents, who don't know of the affair, to go out on a date with her daughter, who is the same age as Ben. Benjamin is livid and resents this, so he acts like an indifferent, callous punk when he takes her out. He takes her to a seedy part of town and is quickly walking ahead of her, forcing her to quickly navigate the throngs of people just to keep up with him. He takes her into a strip club and sits down in the center front table. Then he sits there with his sunglasses on. It's nighttime, mind you, and acts like he's loving the show while this poor girl, Elaine, is on the other side of the table with her back to the show watching Ben act this way. Then it happens. The moment that I think is so beautiful, ugly and sad, all wrapped in an instant. The dancer has tassels attached to her breasts, and she's spinning them on in opposite directions, presumably the climactic moment of her performance. Remember, this is the 60s. And no, this is not the beautiful part of the scene for you smart alecks out there. The dancer then slowly walks over toward Elaine while she's doing this trick, and almost as if to mock her, does this trick leaned over right above Elaine. 
At this moment, tears begin to come down Elaine's cheeks, and Ben sees this, and the glasses come off for the first time. He's touched. He's seen something real. In that moment, Ben is changed. He angrily motions to the dancer to move away, and Elaine hurries out. Ben then chases her, and he chases her for the rest of the movie. This is the main story of the movie, his pursuit of Elaine. But this scene is the catalyst. This scene is the inciting incident that thrusts the main character onto his central path. So why is this scene so great? What's beautiful about it? Ben has been going down a path that's slowly deteriorating. From the emptiness and surface-level praise of a stilted party, to the emptiness of an affair, to the inaction of pool lounging, and finally to the depths of a strip club. The movie took us through realities of what a society creates, what it produces, what it manufactures. And just when he'd gotten to the bottom of these cascading societal byproducts, he sees, for the first time in the film, something real, something meaningful, and something personally significant to him. Everything he had experienced to this point, therefore, is a part of an interconnected falsehood. Remember the party in James Joyce's The Dead, which I talked about some time back in the episode entitled Finding the Needle in Noise? The party's emptiness and superficial banter until he sees his wife deeply touched by a late-night piano tune, that emptiness is precisely the feel of Ben's life in this movie up until that moment. The film is taking this love, this real connection, and stating that that is what really matters. That is the only significant thing in society's maelstrom. These true feelings. This love. Maybe that's why I like this movie so much, and why I like Joyce's The Dead. My life parallels that way of living. I'm always looking for these moments of meaning. It seems to me that nature is a constant truth, something honest that underlies everything. It can be seen in a tree, in a mountain, and even in a person. Maybe, just maybe, truth is love. Maybe these discoveries of meaning in life, the types of things I have filled this podcast with, maybe they are simply varying aspects of love. After all, it is my emotional reaction to them that make them significant to me. Otherwise, they'd be as interesting as 2 plus 2 equals 4. I'm actually going down this side path of thought on purpose in order to better understand and appreciate the movie's contrast of love against all of society's targeted institutions, I have to try to see love, that human connection, as something that transcends romantic love. I have to see it as something wide-reaching and powerful, something that has the weight to be a counter to the stilted byproducts of society. Ben has a real human connection with Elaine not just a crush, and this human connection is what all of our society boils down to, correct? We're simply human beings making a connection with each other. And amidst all of these complicated layers of careers, parties, expectations, labels, family politics, etc., amidst all of these, the simple human connection is lost. So Ben has found meaning. 
he has found truth. I'm going to jump ahead to the ending. Like many other movies, Elaine finds out about Ben's former affair with her mother, rejects him, and is now marrying another man. Ben must get to the wedding and stop the proceedings. After a lot of driving back and forth between San Francisco and Los Angeles, this last sprint is for the chapel. His car runs out of gas, and he is forced to run the last stretch. He arrives at a modern, sterile church and goes upstairs to the overlook. There is a glass window, and he sees that he is just a few seconds late. The pronouncing of man and wife has passed, and they have now kissed to seal the ceremony. At this point, Ben begins pounding on the glass, passionately yelling, Elaine, over and over. All the people, the parents, are shown with no sound, cursing and angrily yelling at Ben, their enraged faces filling the screen one by one. Then Elaine, overtaken with the truth of the moment, the truth of Ben's passion for her, the truth inside her that she loves Ben. Elaine, in a beautiful moment of truth, yells out Ben's name. Everyone goes quiet. Ben runs down, and he comes over to Elaine. People try to get to them once they're together, and Ben actually uses a big cross at one point to fend off the angry mob. Then they escape out of the church and run to catch a bus for the final scene, which I'll talk about in a bit. There are a couple important things to point out here. The modern direction of the institution of religion, as well as marriage, is attacked here. The church is lifeless, modern. There's no feeling to it. Then Ben uses the cross as a barrier to the people. But the most important attack here, the most drastic and volatile attack of the whole movie, and an attack that often goes unnoticed, is the fact that he is running away with a married woman. The ceremony was complete. They were pronounced husband and wife. Yet their truth, the truth of their bond and love, was more important than the label of marriage, more important than the beliefs of a church. In most films, the ceremony is caught just before one of them says, I do. But this is where the film takes a radical attack at the meaning of marriage in the first place. The only two examples of marriage we had seen up to this point were Ben's and Elaine's parents. One set saw their son through labels and expectations, ever blind to the difficult feelings he was experiencing, and the other set was a facade of a marriage with a wife who was never able to fulfill her true desires of art and turned to an empty affair in desperation and misery. The movie is setting us up to accept this unorthodox ending, to question whether that marriage confirmation really means anything in the end. So off they go. And how do we end? The bus riding off into the sunset with credits rolling over the top? No. This resolution is carefully scripted to force us to infer, to prod us to ponder, what is next. We follow the two giddy kids onto the bus and back to the last rear seat. They plop down and smile with the rushing glee of what they had done. They are excited and happy. So this is where it ends, correct? This is where the credits roll. In any modern film, yes. But we stay there. We stay with them. The camera, and you have to see it in the widescreen because full screen has trouble showing both of them. The camera stays wide, just watching their faces. 
and you see the initial flash of excitement begin to wear off. They begin to sober up, and you then are forced, as the viewer, to reflect on what just happened, as are they. They left their family. She's married. So their former life is essentially over as they knew it. In those days, their choices are all choices disconnected from society, whether it's joining a commune, going to Canada, or simply trying to start over in another state with different names. Whatever the path, we know it doesn't fit within society. They have broken out of that yoke, and their faces become contemplative, very pensive. They don't look at each other much. They just think on their own, and so do we. Eventually, we are separated, and the last shot is following the back of the bus. Then, as if we aren't able to go where they are going, the camera stops and the bus drives off. The camera even stops with somewhat of a jolt, just as you'd see if you had a camera mounted on a car. The sudden stop gives a quick, slight, forward tilt to the camera. I think that was done on purpose to make us feel like we were following in our vehicle, and we physically were halted. We couldn't go where they were going. We are a part of this society, and they were headed to the unknown detachment, a void of manufactured labels and structure. They were headed for something radical, pure, and true. Maybe this film is showing us base truth. Maybe the reality beneath everything we, as society, hold up as what we think is important, maybe that underlying reality is simply various types of love. Maybe reality is only feelings. That brings us to a close. So until next time, I wish you well, and don't forget to follow Nature's Lead.